Hey, it's Otis here. Before we get to the bedtime reading, I wanted to let you know that I just launched a brand new show. It's called The Daily Book Club, a daytime companion to Sleepy, where you hear entire books one chapter at a time, one day at a time. Simple as that. So if Sleepy is how you uh, wind down your day, The Daily Book Club is a great way to start your day. There's new episodes daily. Uh, I read in a slightly peppier voice so that you can get really lost in these amazing stories that have stood the test of time. Or, just like Sleepy, you can sit back and relax and zone out to a good book. The first book we'll be reading is The Enchanted April by Elizabeth Von Arnhem. Story is, in the 1920s, four women unfulfilled with life take a chance and abscond to a dreamy medieval Italian castle. It's a story dripping with wisteria, the beauty of solitude, and an unlikely pursuit of joy in Portofino, Italy. I think that this is a perfect story for the season, and you can hear it now. Find The Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. This show has been a long time coming, and I'm so excited to bring you even more stories. So go subscribe to The Daily Book Club to hear what happens next. Thanks. This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well, and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high-quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones, they have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included. And there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hi everyone. My name is Otis Gray and you're listening to Sleepy podcast where I read you to sleep. This is our fourth episode, and to be honest, I haven't told a lot of people about the show. Still, people are finding it. I don't really know how, but it's really great. So if you like the show, go give a quick rating on Apple Podcasts, and let me know a book that you'd want to hear in a review. This is going to help more people find the show. For those of you who have listened before, welcome back. If you're new to the show, all the books that I'll be reading are old classics, books I've wanted to read for a long time, all books in the public domain. 
just because I hope you'll be asleep by the end of this. Couple things. Tonight, I'll be recording from the shores of Woods Hole, Massachusetts, in Cape Cod. I'm here till June for the Transom Story Workshop, where rookies like me learn how to be good radio storytellers. So I have to thank the incredible Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media for the cozy recording space. You're great, Vicki. Also, the music you're hearing is by my good friend, James Lepkowski. It's played on this amazing guitar ukulele thing that he made. Two episodes ago, I started reading Wind in the Willows by Kenneth Graham, written in 1908. It's one of my favorite stories. Well, I actually got a handful of requests asking for the next couple chapters. So tonight, I'm going to read them to you while you drift off into a deep, deep slumber. My hope is that you're not paying much attention to this at all, but if you want to start from the beginning, subscribe to the show and then go back to the second episode where we start at chapter one. So now, lay your head down, settle in, Fix your pillow just how you like it. Slowly melt into your bed and close your eyes and let me read to you. They waited patiently for what seemed like a very long time, stamping in the snow to keep their feet warm. At last they heard the sound of slow, shuffling footsteps approaching the door from the inside. It seemed, as the mole remarked to the rat, like someone walking in carpet slippers that were too large for him and down at heel, which was intelligent of mole, because that was exactly what it was. There was the noise of a bolt shot back, and the door opened a few inches, enough to show a long snout and a pair of sleepy, blinking eyes. Now, the very next time this happens said a gruff and suspicious voice. I shall be exceedingly angry. Who is it this time? Disturbing people on such a night. Speak up. Oh, badger, cried the rat. Let us in. It's me, rat, and my friend Mole, and we've lost our way in the snow. What, ratty, my dear little man, exclaimed the badger in quite a different voice. Come along in, both of you, at once. Why, you must be perished. Well, I never, lost in the snow, and in the wild wood, too, and at this time of night, but come in with you. The two animals tumbled over each other in their eagerness to get inside, and heard the door shut behind them with great joy and relief. The badger, who wore a long dressing gown, and whose slippers were indeed very down at the heel, carried a flat candlestick in his paw, and had probably been on his way to bed, when their summons sounded. He looked kindly down on them and patted both their heads. This is not the sort of night for small animals to be out, he said paternally. I'm afraid you've been up to some of your pranks again, Ratty. But come along. Come into the kitchen. There's a first-rate fire there and supper and everything. He shuffled on in front of them, carrying the light, and they followed him, nudging each other in an anticipating sort of way down a long, gloomy, and, to tell the truth, decidedly shabby passage into a sort of central hall, out of which they could dimly see other long tunnel passages branching 
passages mysterious and without apparent end. But there were doors in the hall as well, stout, oaken, comfortable-looking doors. One of these the badger flung open, and at once they found themselves in all the glow and warmth of a large, firelit kitchen. The floor was well-worn brick, and on the wide hearth burnt a fire of logs between two attractive chimney corners tucked away in the wall, well out of any suspicion of draft. A couple of high-backed settles facing each other on either side of the fire gave further sitting accommodation for the sociably disposed. In the middle of the room stood a long table of plain boards placed on trestles with benches down each side. At one end of it, where an armchair stood pushed back, were spread the remains of the badger's plain but ample supper. Rows of spotless plates winked from the shelves of the dresser at the far end of the room, and from the rafters overhead hung hams, bundles of dried herbs, nets of onions, and baskets of eggs. It seemed a place where heroes could fitly feast after victory, where weary harvesters could line up in scores along the table and keep their harvest home with mirth and song, or where two or three friends of simple taste could sit around about as they pleased and eat and smoke and talk in comfort and contentment. The ruddy brick floor smiled up at the smoky ceiling. The oaken settles, shiny with long wear, exchanged cheerful glances with each other. Plates on the dresser grinned at pots on the shelf, and the merry firelight flickered and played over everything without distinction. The kindly badger thrust them down on the settle to toast themselves at the fire and bade them remove their wet coats and boots. Then he fetched them dressing gowns and slippers, and himself bathed the mole's shin with warm water and mended the cut with sticking plaster till the whole thing was just as good as new, if not better. In the embracing light and warmth, warm and dry at last, with weary legs propped up in front of them, and a suggestive clink of plates being arranged on the table behind. It seemed to the storm-driven animals, now in safe anchorage, that the cold and trackless wild wood just left outside was miles and miles away, and all that they had suffered in it a half-forgotten dream. When at last they were thoroughly toasted, the badger summoned them to the table, where they had been busy laying a repast. They had felt pretty hungry before, but when they actually saw that last the supper that was spread before them, really, it seemed, only a question of what they should attack first, where all was so attractive, and whether the other things would obligingly wait for them till they had time to give them attention. Conversation was impossible for a long time, and when it was slowly resumed, it was that regrettable sort of conversation that results from talking with your mouth full. The badger did not mind that sort of thing at all, nor did he take any notice of elbows on the table or everybody speaking at once. As he did not go into society himself, he had got an idea that these things belong to the things that really don't matter. We know, of course, that he was wrong and took too narrow a view because they do matter very much, though it would take too long to explain why. He sat in his armchair at the head of the table and nodded gravely at intervals as the animals told their story. And he did not seem surprised or shocked at anything, 
and he never said, I told you so, or just what I have always said, or remarked that they ought to have done so and so, or ought not to have done something else. The mole began to feel very friendly towards him. When supper was really finished at last, and each animal felt his skin was now as tight as was decently safe, and that by this time he didn't care a hang for anybody or anything, they gathered round the glowing embers of the great wood fire and thought how jolly it was to be sitting up so late and so independent and so full, and if they had chattered for a long time about things in general, the badger said heartily, Now then, tell us the news from your part of the world. How's old Toad going on? Oh, from bad to worse, said the rat gravely, while the mole, cocked up on a settle and basking in the firelight, his heels higher than his head, tried to look properly mournful. Another smash-up only last week, and a bad one. You see, he will insist on driving himself, and he's hopelessly incapable. If he'd only employ a decent, steady, well-trained animal, pay him good wages, and leave everything to him, he'd get on all right. But no, he's convinced he's a heaven-born driver, and nobody can teach him anything, and all the rest follows. How many has he had? inquired the badger gloomily. Smashes or machines? asked the rat. Oh, well, after all, it's the same thing with Toad. This is the seventh. And for the others, you know, that coach house of his? Well, it's piled up. Literally, piled up to the roof with fragments of motor cars, none of them bigger than your hat. That accounts for the other six, so far as they can be accounted for. He's been in the hospital three times, put in the mole. As for the fines he's had to pay, it is simply awful to think of. Yes, and that's part of the trouble, continued the rat. Toad's rich, we all know, but he's not a millionaire, and he's a hopelessly bad driver, and quite regardless of law and order. Killed or ruined, it's got to be one of the two things, sooner or later. Badger, we're his friends. Oughtn't we do something? The badger went through a bit of hard thinking. Now look here, he said at last, rather severely. Of course you know I can't do anything now. His two friends assented, quite understanding his point. No animal, according to the rules of animal etiquette, is ever expected to do anything strenuous or heroic or even moderately active during the off-season of winter. All are sleepy. Some actually sleep. All are weather-bound, more or less. And all are resting some arduous days and nights during which every muscle in them has been severely tested and every energy kept at full stretch. Very well, then, continued the badger. But when once the year has really turned and the nights are shorter and halfway through them one rouses and feels fidgety and wanting to be up and doing at sunrise, if not before, you know. Both animals nodded gravely. They knew. Well then, went on the badger. We, that is, you and me and our friend Mole here, will take the road seriously in hand. We'll stand no nonsense whatsoever. We'll bring him back to reason. By force if need be. We'll make him more sensible. 
will make him be a sensible toad. Well, you're asleep, rat. Not me, said the rat, waking up with a jerk. He's been asleep two or three times since supper, said the mole, laughing. He himself was feeling quite wakeful and even lively, though he didn't know why. The reason was, of course, that he being naturally an underground animal by birth and breeding, the situation of Badger's house exactly suited him and made him feel at home, while the rat, who slept every night in a bedroom with windows, of which opened on a breezy river, naturally felt the atmosphere still and oppressive. Well, it's time we all go to bed, said the badger, getting up and fetching flat candlesticks. Come along, you two, and I'll show you your quarters, and take your time tomorrow morning. Breakfast at any hour you please. He conducted the two animals to a long room that seemed half bedchamber and half loft. The badger's winter stores, which indeed were visible everywhere, took up half the room. Piles of apples, turnips, and potatoes, baskets full of nuts and jars of honey, and two little white beds on the remainder of the floor looked soft and inviting, and the linen on them, though coarse, was clean and smelt beautifully of lavender, and the mole and the water rat, shaking off their garments in some thirty seconds, tumbled in between the sheets in great joy and contentment. In accordance with the kindly badger's injunctions, the two tired animals came down to breakfast very late next morning and found a bright fire burning in the kitchen and two young hedgehogs sitting on the bench of the table eating oatmeal porridge out of wooden bowls. The hedgehogs dropped their spoons, rose to their feet, and ducked their heads respectively as the two entered. There, sit down, sit down, said the rat pleasantly, and go on with your porridge. Where have you youngsters come from? Lost your way in the snow, I suppose. Yes, please, sir, said the elder of the two hedgehogs respectively. Me and little Billy here. We was trying to find our way to school. Mother would have us go, was the weather ever so. And of course we lost ourselves, sir. And Billy, he got frightened and took and cried. Being young and faint-hearted, and at last we happened up again on Mr. Badger's back door and made so bold as to knock, sir. For Mr. Badger, he's a kind-hearted gentleman, as everyone knows. I understand, said the rat, cutting himself some rashers from a side of bacon while the mole dropped some eggs in a saucepan. And what's the weather like outside? You needn't sir me quite so much, he added. Oh, terrible bad, sir. Terrible deep the snow is, said the hedgehog. No getting out for the likes of you gentlemen today. Where's Mr. Badger? inquired the mole as he warmed the coffee pot before the fire. The master's gone into his study, sir, replied the hedgehog, and he said as how he was going to be particularly busy this morning, and on no account was he to be disturbed. This explanation, of course, was thoroughly understood by everyone present. The fact is, as already set forth, when you live a life of intense activity for six months in the year, and of comparative or actual somnolence for the other six, during the latter period you cannot be continually 
fleeting sleepiness when there are people about or things to be done. The excuse gets monotonous. The animals well knew that Badger, having eaten a hearty breakfast, was retired to his study and settled himself in an armchair with his legs up on another and a red cotton handkerchief over his face and was being busy in the usual way at this time of year. The front door bell clanged loudly and the rat who was very greasy from buttered toast sent Billy, the smaller hedgehog, to see who it might be. There was a sound of much stamping in the hall and presently Billy returned in front of the otter who threw himself on the rat with an embrace and a shout of affectionate greeting. Get off, sputtered the rat with his mouthful. Thought I should find you here all right, said the otter cheerfully. They were all in the great state of alarm along the river bank when I arrived this morning. Rat, never been home all night, nor mole either. Something dreadful must have happened, they said, and the snow had covered up all your tracks, of course. But I knew that when people were in any fix they mostly went to Badger, or else Badger got to know of it somehow. So I came straight off here, through the wild wood and snow. My, it was fine, coming through the snow as the red sun was rising, showing against the black tree trunks. As he went along in the stillness, every now and then masses of snow slid off the branches suddenly with a flop, making you jump and run for cover. Snow castles and snow caverns had sprung up out of nowhere in the night, and snow bridges, terraces, ramparts. I could have stayed and played with them for hours. Here and there, great branches had been torn away by the sheer weight of the snow, and robins perched and hopped on them with their perky, conceited way, just as if they had done it themselves. A ragged string of wild geese passed overhead, high in the gray sky, and a few rooks whirled over the trees, inspected, and flapped off homewards with a disgusted expression. But I met no sensible being to ask the news of. About halfway across I came on a rabbit, sitting on a stump, cleaning his silly face with his paws. He was a pretty scared animal when I crept up behind him and placed a heavy forepaw on his shoulder. I had to cuff his head once or twice to get any sense out of it at all. At last I managed to extract from him that Mole had been seen in the wild wood last night by one of them. It was the talk of the burrows, he said, how Mole, Mr. Rat's particular friend, was in a bad fix, how he had lost his way, and they were up and out hunting and were chivying him round and round. Then why didn't any of you do something? I asked. You may be blessed with brains, but there are hundreds and hundreds of you, big, stout fellows, as fat as butter, and your burrows running in all directions, and you could have taken him in and made him safe and comfortable, or tried to, at all events. What, us? He merely said. Do something? Us rabbits? So I cuffed him again and left him. There was nothing else to be done. At any rate, I had learned something. If I had had the luck to meet any of them, I'd have learned something more, or they would. Weren't you at all or nervous? asked the mole. 
Some of yesterday's terror came back to him in the mention of the wild wood. Nervous, the otter showed a gleaming set of strong white teeth as he laughed. I'd give him nerves if any of them tried anything on me. Here, Mole, fry me some slices of ham, like the good little chap you are. I'm frightfully hungry, and I've got any amount to say to Ratty here. Haven't seen him for an age. So the good-natured Mole, having cut some slices of ham, set the hedgehogs to fry it, and returned to his own breakfast, while the otter and the rat, their heads together, eagerly talked river shop, which is long shop and talk that is endless running on like the babbling river itself. A plate of fried ham had just been cleared and sent back for more when the badger entered, yawning and rubbing his eyes, and greeted them all in his quiet, simple way, with kind inquiries for everyone. It must be getting on for luncheon time, he remarked to the otter. Better stop and have it with us. He must be hungry this cold morning. Rather, replied the otter, winking at the mole, the sight of these greedy young hedgehogs stuffing themselves with fried ham makes me feel positively famished. The hedgehogs, who were just beginning to feel hungry again after their porridge, after working so hard in their frying, looked timidly up at Mr. Badger, but were too shy to say anything. Here, you two youngsters, be off home to your mother, said the badger kindly. I'll send someone with you to show you the way. You won't want any dinner today. I'll be bound. He gave them sixpence apiece and pat them on the head, and they went off with much respectful swinging of caps and touching of forelocks. Presently, they all sat down to luncheon together. The mole found himself placed next to Mr. Badger, and, as the other two were still deep in river gossip, from which nothing could ever divert them, he took the opportunity to tell Badger how comfortable and homelike it all felt to him. Once while underground, he said, you know exactly where you are. Nothing can happen to you, and nothing can get at you. You're entirely your own master, and you don't have to consult anybody or mind what they say. Things go on all the same overhead, and you let them, and don't bother about them. When you want to, up you go, and there the things are waiting for you. The badger simply beamed at him. That's exactly what I say, he replied. There's no security or peace and tranquility except underground. And then, if your ideas get larger and you want to expand, why, a dig and a scrape, and there you are. And you feel, if you feel that your house is a bit too big, you stop up a hole or two, and there you are again. No builders, no tradesmen, no remarks passed on you by fellows looking over your wall, and, above all, no weather. Look at Rat now. A couple of feet of flood water, and he's got to move his entire lodgings. Uncomfortable, inconveniently situated, and horribly expensive. Take Toad. I say nothing against Toad Hall, quite the best house in these parts, as a house. But supposing a fire breaks out, where's Toad? Supposing the rooms are drafty, I hate a draft myself. Where's Toad? 
No, up and out of doors is good enough to roam about and get one's living in, but underground to come back to at last. That's my idea of home. The mole assented heartily, and the badger in consequence got very friendly with him. When lunch is over, he said, I'll take you all around this little place of mine. I can see you'll appreciate it. You understand what domestic architecture ought to be. You do. After luncheon, accordingly, when the other two have settled themselves into a chimney corner and had started a heated argument on the subject of eels, the badger lighted a lantern and bade them all follow him. Crossing the hall, they passed down one of the principal tunnels, and the wavering light of the lantern gave glimpses on either side of rooms, both large and small, some mere cupboards, others nearly as broad and imposing as Toad's dining hall. A narrow passage at right angles led them into another corridor, and here the same thing was repeated. The mole was staggered at size, the extent, the ramifications of it all, at the length of the dim passages, the solid vaultings of crammed store chambers, the masonry everywhere, the pillars, the arches, the pavements. How on earth, Badger, he said at last, did you ever find time and strength to do all this? It's astonishing. It would be astonishing indeed, said the Badger simply, if I had done it. But as a matter of fact, I did none of it, only cleaned out the passages in the chambers, far as I had need of them. There's lots more of it, all around about. I see you don't understand, and I must explain it to you. Well, very long ago, on the spot where the wild wood waves now, before ever it planted itself and grown up to what it is now, there was a city, a city of people, you know. Here, where we're standing, they lived and walked and talked and slept, and carried on their business. Here they stabled their horses and feasted. From here they rode out to fight, or drove out to trade. They were powerful people, and rich, and they were great builders. They built to last, or they thought their city would last forever. But what has become of them all? asked the mole. Who can tell? said the badger. People come, they stay for a while. They flourish, they build, and they go. It's their way. But we remain. There were badgers here, I've been told, long before that same city ever came to be, and now there are badgers here again. We are an enduring lot, and we may move out for a time, but we wait and are patient, and back we come, and so it will ever be. Well... And when they went at last, those people, said the mole. When they went, continued the badger, the strong winds and persistent rains took the matter in hand, patiently, ceaselessly, year after year. Perhaps we badgers too, in our small way, helped a little. Who knows? It was all down, 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 gradually, ruin and leveling and disappearance, then it was all up, 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 gradually, as the seed grows into a sapling, and saplings to forest trees, 
and bramble and fern came creeping in to help. Leaf mold rose and obliterated. Streams in their winter freshets brought sand and soil to clog and to cover. And the course of time our home was ready for us again. And we moved in. Up above us on the surface, the same thing happened. Animals arrived, liked the look of the place, took up the quarters, settled down, spread and flourished. They didn't bother themselves about the past. They never do. They're too busy. The place was a bit humpy and hill cocky, naturally and full of holes, but that was rather an advantage. And they don't bother about the future either. The future when perhaps the people will move in again, for a time, as may very well be. The wildwood is pretty well populated by now, with all the usual lot, good, bad, and indifferent. I name no names. It takes all sorts to make a world, but I fancy you know something about them yourself by this time. I do indeed, said the mole, with a slight shiver. Well, said the badger, patting him on the shoulder. It was your first experience of them, you see. They're not so bad, really, and we must all live and let live. But I'll pass the word around tomorrow, and I think you'll have no further trouble. Any friend of mine walks where he likes in this country, or I'll know the reason why. When they got back to the kitchen again, they found the rat walking up and down very restless. The underground atmosphere was oppressing him and getting on his nerves, and he seemed really to be afraid that the river would run away if he wasn't there to look after it. So he had his overcoat on, and his pistols thrust into his belt again. Come along, Mole, he said anxiously, as soon as he caught the sight of him. We must get off while it's still daylight. Don't want to spend another night in the wild wood again. It'll be all right, my fine fellow, said the otter. I'm coming along with you, and I know every path blindfold. And if there's a head that needs to be punched, you can confidently rely upon me to punch it. You really needn't fret, Ratty, added the badger placidly. My passages run farther than you think, and have bolt holes to the edge of the wood in several directions, though I don't care for everybody to know about them. When you really have to go, you shall leave by one of my shortcuts. Meantime, make yourself easy and sit down again. The rat was nevertheless still anxious to be off and attend to his river, so the badger, taking up his lantern again, led the way along a damp and airless tunnel that wound and dipped, part vaulted, part hewn through solid rock, for a weary distance that seemed to be miles. At last daylight began to show itself, confusedly, through tangled growth overhanging the mouth of the passage, and the badger, bidding them a hasty goodbye, pushed them hurriedly through the opening, made everything look as natural as possible again, with creepers, brushwood, and dead leaves, and retreated. They found themselves standing on the very edge of the wild wood, rocks and brambles and tree roots behind them, confusedly heaped and tangled. In front, a great space of quiet fields, hemmed by lines of hedges, 
black on the snow, and far ahead, a glint of the familiar old river, while the wintry sun hung red and low on the horizon. The otter, as knowing all paths, took charge of the party, and they trailed out in a beeline for the distant stile. Pausing there a moment and looking back, they saw the whole mass of the wild wood, dense, menacing, compact, grimly set in vast white surroundings. Simultaneously, they turned and made swiftly for home, for firelight and the familiar things it played on, for the voice sounding cheerily outside their window of the river that they knew and trusted in all its moods that never made them afraid with any amazement. As he hurried along, eagerly anticipating the moment when he would be at home again among the things that he knew and liked, the mole saw clearly that he was an animal of tilled field and hedgerow, linked to the plowed furrow, the frequented pasture, the lane of evening lingerings, the cultivated garden plot, for others the asperities, the stubborn endurance, or the clash of actual conflict that went with nature in the rough. He must be wise. He must keep to the pleasant places in which his lines were laid and which held adventures enough in their way to last a lifetime. Dolce Domum The sheep ran huddling together against the hurdles, blowing out thin nostrils and stamping with delicate forefeet their heads thrown back and light steam rising from the crowded sheep pen into the frosty air, as the two animals hastened by in high spirits with much chatter and laughter. They were turning across the country after a long day's outing with otter, hunting and exploring on the wide uplands where certain streams tributary to their own river and had their first small beginnings and the shades of short winter day were closing in on them, and they still had some distance to go. Plodding at random across the plow, they had heard the sheep and had made for them, and now, leading from the sheep pen, they found a beaten track that made walking a lighter business, and responded, moreover, to that small, inquiring something which all animals carry inside them saying unmistakably, yes, quite right, this leads home. It looks as if we were coming to a village, said the mole somewhat dubiously, slackening his pace, as the track that had in time become a path and then had developed into a lane now handed them over to the charge of a well-metaled road. The animals did not hold with villages and their own highways, thickly frequented as they were, took an independent course, regardless of church, post office, or public house. Oh, never mind, said the rat. At this season of the year, they're all safe indoors at this time, sitting round the fire, men, women, and children, dogs and cats and all. We shall slip through all right, without any bother or unpleasantness, and we can have a look at them through their windows if you like and see what they're doing. The rapid nightfall of mid-December had quite beset the little village as they approached it on soft feet over a first thin fall of powdery snow. 
Little was visible, but squares of dusky orange-red on either side of the street, where the firelight or lamplight of each cottage overflowed through the casements into the dark world without. Most of the lattice windows were innocent of blinds, and to the lookers-on from the outside, the inmates gathered round the tea table, absorbed in handiwork, or talking with laughter and gesture, had each that happy grace, which is the last thing the skilled actors shall capture, the natural grace which goes with perfect unconsciousness of observation. Moving at will from one theater to another, the two spectators, so far from home themselves, had something of wistfulness in their eyes as they watched a cat being stroked, a sleepy child picked up and huddled off to bed, or a tired man stretch and knock out his pipe on the end of a smoldering log. But it was from one little window, with its blinds drawn down, a mere blank transparency on the night, that the sense of home and the little curtained world within walls, a larger stressful world of outside nature, shut out and forgotten, most pulsated. Close against the white blind hung a birdcage, clearly silhouetted, every wire, perch, and appurtenance distinct and recognizable. Even to yesterday's dull-edged lump of sugar, on the middle perch, the fluffy occupant, head tucked well into feathers, seemed so near to them as to be easily stroked. Had they tried, even the delicate tips of his plumped-out plumage penciled plainly on the illuminated screen. As they looked, the sleepy little fellow stirred uneasily, woke, shook himself, and raised his head. They could see the gape of his tiny beak as he yawned in a bored sort of way, looked around, and then settled his head into his back again, while the ruffled feathers gradually subsided into perfect stillness. Then a gust of bitter wind took them in the back of the neck. A small sting of frozen sleet on the skin woke them as from a dream, and they knew their toes to be cold and their legs tired, their own home distant a weary way. Once beyond the village, where the cottages ceased abruptly, on either side of the road they could smell, through the darkness, the friendly fields again, and they braced themselves for the last stretch, the home stretch the stretch that we know is bound to end sometime, in the rattle of the door latch, the sudden firelight, and the sight of familiar things greeting us as long absent travelers from far oversea. They plodded along steadily and silently, each of them thinking his own thoughts. The moles ran a good deal in supper, as it was pitch dark, and it was still strange country to him as far as he knew and he was following obediently in the wake of the rat, leaving the guidance entirely to him. As for the rat, he was walking a little way ahead, as his habit was. His shoulders humped, his eyes fixed on the straight gray road in front of him, so he did not notice poor Mole when suddenly the summons reached him and took him like an electric shock. We others who have long lost more subtle of the physical senses, have not even proper terms to express an animal's 
inner communications with the surroundings, living or otherwise, and of only the word smell, for instance, to include the whole range of delicate thrills which murmur in the nose of an animal, night and day, summoning, warning, inciting, repelling. It was one of those mysterious fairy calls from out of the void that suddenly reached Mole in the darkness, making him tingle through and through with its very familiar appeal, even while as yet he could not clearly remember what it was. He stopped dead in his tracks, his nose searching hither and thither in its efforts to recapture the fine filament, the telegraphic current that had so strongly moved him. A moment, and he had caught it again, and with it this time came recollection in fullest flood. Home. That was what they meant. Those caressing appeals, those soft touches wafted through the air, those invisible little hands pulling and tugging all one way. Why, it must be close by him at the moment. His old home they had hurriedly forsaken and never sought again. That day when he first found the river, and now it was sending out to its scouts and its messengers to capture him and bring him in. Since his escape on that bright morning, he had hardly given it a thought. So absorbed had he been in his new life, in all its pleasures, its surprises, its fresh and captivating experiences. Now with a rush of old memories, how clearly it stood before him in the darkness, shabby indeed, a small and poorly furnished, and yet his, the home he had made for himself, the home he had been so happy to get back to after his day's work, and the home had been so happy with him too, evidently, and was missing him, and wanted him back, and was telling him so, through his nose, sorrowfully, reproachfully, and with no bitterness or anger, only with plaintive reminder that it was there, and it wanted him. The call was clear, the summons was plain, he must obey it instantly and go. Ratty, he called, full of joyful excitement. Hold on, come back, I want you quick. Oh, come along, Mole, do, replied the rat cheerfully, still plodding along. Please stop, Ratty, pleaded the poor Mole, in anguish of heart. You don't understand. It's my home, my old home. I've come across the smell of it, and it's close by here, really quite close. I must go to it. I must, I must. Oh, come back, Ratty, please, come back. The rat was by this time very far ahead, too far to hear clearly what the mole was calling, too far to catch the sharp note of painful appeal in his voice, and he was much taken up with the weather, for he too could smell something, something suspiciously like approaching snow. Mole, we mustn't stop now, really, he called back. We'll come for it tomorrow, whatever it is you found. But I daren't stop now. It's late, and the snow's coming on again. And I'm not sure of the way. And I want your nose, Mole. So come on quick. There's a good fellow. 
and the rat pressed forward on his way without waiting for an answer. Poor Mole stood alone in the road, his heart torn asunder, and a big sob gathering, gathering somewhere low drowned inside him, to leap up to the surface presently, he knew, in passionate escape. But even under such a test as this, his loyalty to his friend stood firm. Never for a moment did he dream of abandoning him. Meanwhile, the wafts from his old home pleaded, whispered, conjured, and finally claimed him imperiously. He dared not tarry longer with their magic circle. With a wrench that tore his very heartstrings, he set his face down on the road and followed submissively in the track of the rat, while faint, thin, little smells still dogging his retreating nose reproached him for his new friendship and his callous forgetfulness. With an effort, he caught up to the unsuspecting rat, who began chattering cheerfully about what they would do when they would get back, and how jolly a fire of logs in the parlor would be, and what a supper he meant to eat, never noticing his companion's silence and distressful state of mind. At last, however, when they had gone some considerable way further, and were passing some tree stumps at the edge of a copse, that boarded the road, he stopped and said kindly, Look here, mole old chap, you seem dead tired, no talk left in you, and your feet dragging like lead. We'll sit down here for a minute and rest. The snow has held off so far, and the best part of our journey is over. The mole subsided forlornly on a tree stump and tried to control himself, for he felt it surely coming. The sob he had fought with so long refused to be beaten. Up and up, it forced its way to the air, and then another, and then another, and others thick and fast, till poor Mole at last gave up the struggle and cried freely and helplessly and openly. Now that he knew it was all over, and he had lost what he could hardly be said to have found, the rat, Astonished and dismayed at the violence of Mole's paroxysm of grief, did not dare to speak for a while. At last he said very quietly and sympathetically, What is it, old fellow? Whatever can be the matter? Tell us your trouble, and let me see what I can do. Poor Mole found it difficult to get any words out between the upheavals of his chest that followed one upon another, so quickly and held back speech and choked it as it came. I know it's a shabby, dingy little place, he sobbed forth at last, brokenly. Not like your cozy quarters or Toad's beautiful hall or Badger's great house, but it was my own little home, and I was fond of it, and I went away and forgot all about it, and then I smelt it suddenly on the road when I called you and you wouldn't listen. Rat, and everything came back to me with a rush and I wanted it. Oh dear, oh dear. And when you wouldn't turn back, ratty, and I had to leave it, though I was smelling it all the time, I thought my heart would break. We might have just gone and had one look at it, ratty, only one look 
It was close by, but you wouldn't turn back. Ratty, you wouldn't turn back. Oh dear, oh dear. Recollection brought fresh waves of sorrow, and sobs again took full charge of him, preventing further speech. The rat stared straight in front of him, saying nothing, only patting Mole gently on the shoulder. After a time, he muttered gloomily, I see it all now. What a pig I've been. A pig. That's me. Just a pig. A plain pig. He waited till Mole's sobs became gradually less stormy and more rhythmical. He waited till at last sniffs were frequent and sobs were only intermittent. Then he rose from his seat and remarkingly carelessly, well, now we'd really better get going, old chap, set off up the road again over the toilsome way they had come. Whatever are you going to, Ratty, cried the tearful mole, looking up in alarm. We're going to find that home of yours, old fellow, replied the rat pleasantly, so you had better come along, for it will take some finding, and we shall want your nose. Oh, come back, Ratty, do, cried the mole, getting up and hurrying after him. It's no good, I tell you, it's too late and too dark, and the place is too far off, and the snow's coming, and I never meant to let you know I was feeling that way about it. It was all an accident and a mistake, and think of the riverbank and your supper. Hang riverbank, and supper too, said the rat heartily. I tell you, I'm going to find this place now, if I stay out all night. So cheer up, old chap and take my arm, and we'll very soon be back there again. Still snuffling, pleading, and reluctant, Mole suffered himself to be dragged back along the road by his imperious companion, who, by a flow of cheerful talk and anecdote, endeavored to beguile his spirits back and make the weary way seem shorter, when at last it seemed to the rat that they must be nearing that part of the road the mole had been held up, he said, Now, no more talking. Business. Use your nose and give your mind to it. They moved on in silence for some little way, when suddenly the rat was conscious, through his arm that was lengthened moles, of a faint sort of electric thrill that was passing down the animal's body. Instantly he disengaged himself, fell back a pace and waited, all attention. The signals were coming through. Mole stood a moment rigid, while his uplifted nose, quivering slightly, felt the air. Then a short, quick run forward, a fault, a check, a try back, and then a slow, steady, confident advance. The rat, much excited, kept close to his heels as the mole, with something of the air of a sleepwalker, crossed a dry ditch, scrambled through a hedge, and nosed his way over a field, open and trackless, and bare in the faint starlight. Suddenly, without giving warning, he dived, but the rat was on the alert, and promptly followed him down the tunnel 
to which his unerring nose had faithfully led him. It was close and airless, and the earthy smell was strong, and it seemed a long time to rat ere the passage ended and he could stand erect and stretch and shake himself. The mole struck a match, and by its light the rat saw that they were standing in an open space, neatly swept and sanded underfoot, and directly facing him was Mole's little front door, with Mole End painted in gothic lettering over the bell pull at the side. Mole reached down a lantern from a nail on the wall and lit it, and the rat, looking around him, saw that they were in a sort of forecourt. A garden seat stood on the side of the door, and on another, a roller, for the mole, who was a tidy animal when at home, could not stand having his ground kicked up by other animals into little runs that ended up in earth heaps. On the walls hung wire baskets with ferns in them, alternating with brackets carrying plaster, statuary, Garibaldi, and the infant Samuel, and Queen Victoria, and other heroes of modern Italy. Down what side of the forecourt ran a skittle alley, with benches along it, and little wooden tables marked with rings that hinted at beer mugs. In the middle was a small round pond containing goldfish, and surrounded by a cockle-shell border. Out of the center of the pond rose a fanciful erection, clothed in more cockle-shells, and topped by a large silver glass ball that reflected everything all wrong, and had a very pleasing effect. Mole's face beamed at the sight of all these objects so dear to him, and he hurried Rat through the door, lit a lamp in the hall, and took one glance around his old home. He saw the dust lying thick on everything, saw the cheerless, deserted look of the long-neglected house, and its narrow, meager dimensions, its worn and shabby contents, and collapsed again on the hall chair, his nose in his paws, Oh, Ratty, he cried dismally. Why ever did I do it? Why did I bring you to this poor, cold little place on a night like this, when you might have been at the riverbank by this time, toasting your toes before a blazing fire with all your own nice things around you? The rat paid no heed to his doleful self-reproaches. He was running here and there, opening doors, inspecting rooms and cupboards, and lighting lamps and candles and sticking them up everywhere. What a capital little house this is, he called out cheerily. So compact, so well planned. Everything here and everything in its place. We'll make a jolly night of it. The first thing we want is a good fire. I'll see to that. I always know where to find things. So, this is the parlor. Splendid. Your own idea. Those little sleeping bunks on the wall. Capital. Now, I'll fetch the wood and the coals, and you get a duster. Mole, you'll find one in the drawer at the top of the kitchen table, and try to smarten things up a bit. Bustle about, old chap. Encouraged by his inspiring companion, the mole roused himself and dusted and polished with energy and hardiness, while the rat, running to and fro with armfuls of fuel, 
soon had a cheerful blaze roaring up the chimney. He hailed the mole to come and warm himself, but mole promptly had another fit of the blues, dropping down on a couch in dark despair and burying his face in his duster. Rat, he moaned, how about your supper, you poor, cold, hungry, weary animal? I've nothing to give you, nothing, not even a crumb. What a fellow you are for giving in, said the rat reproachfully. Why, only just now, I saw a sardine opener on the kitchen dresser, quite distinctly, and everybody knows that that means there are sardines about somewhere in the neighborhood. Rouse yourself, pull yourself together, and come with me and forage. They went and foraged accordingly, hunting through every cupboard and turning out every drawer. The result was not so depressing after all, though of course it might have been better. A tin of sardines, a box of captain's biscuits, nearly full, and a German sausage encased in silver paper. There's a banquet for you, observed the rat, as he arranged the table. I know some animals who would give their ears to be sitting down to supper with us tonight. No bread, groaned the mole dolorously. No butter, no. No pâté de foie gras. No champagne, continued the rat, grinning, and that reminds me. What's that little door at the end of the passage? Your cellar, of course. Every luxury in this house. Just you wait a minute. He made for the cellar door and presently reappeared, somewhat dusty, with a bottle of beer in each paw and another in under each arm. Self-indulgent beggar, you seem to be a mole, he observed. Deny yourself nothing. This is really the jolliest little place I ever was in. Now wherever did you pick up those prints? Make the place so homelike they do. No wonder you're so fond of it, Mole. Tell us all about it, and how you came to make it what it is. Then, while the rat busied himself fetching plates and knives and forks and mustard which he mixed with an egg cup, the Mole his bosom still heaving with stress of his recent emotion, related, somewhat shyly at first, but with more freedom as he had warmed to his subject, how this was planned, and how that was thought out, and how this was got through a windfall from an aunt, and that was a wonderful find and a bargain, and this other thing was brought out of laborious savings and a certain amount of going without. His spirit's finally quite restored. He must needs go and caress his possessions and take a lamp and show off their points to his visitor and expatiate them, quite forgetful of the supper they both so much needed. Rat, who was desperately hungry, but strove to conceal it, nodding seriously, examining with a puckered brow, and saying, wonderful and most remarkable, at intervals, when the chance for observation was given him. At last the rat succeeded in decoying him to the table and had just gotten seriously to work with the sardine opener when sounds were heard from the forecourt without, sounds like the scuffling of small feet in the gravel and a confused murmur of tiny voices, while broken sentences reached him. Now, 
all in a line. Hold the lantern up a bit. Tommy, clear your throats first. No coughing after I say one, two, three. Where's young Bill? Here, come on. Do, we're all awaiting. What's up? inquired the rat, pausing in his labors. I think it must be the field mice, replied the mole, with a touch of pride in his manner. They go around carol singing regularly at this time of the year. They're quite an institution in these parts, and they never pass me over. They come to Mole End last of all, and I used to give them hot drinks, and supper too sometimes, when I could afford it. It would be like old times to hear them again. Let's have a look at them, cried the rat, jumping up and running to the door. It was a pretty sight, and a seasonable one. I met their eyes when they flung open the door. In the forecourt, lit by the dim rays of a horn lantern, some eight or ten little field mice stood in a semicircle, red worsted comforters round their throats, their forepaws thrust deep into their pockets, their feet jigging for warmth. With bright, beady eyes, they glanced shyly at each other, sniggering a little, sniffing and applying coat sleeves a good deal. As the door opened, one of the elder ones had carried the lantern and was just saying, Now then, one, two, three. And forthwith, their shrill little voices uprose on the air, singing one of the old-time carols that their forefathers composed in the fields that were fallow and held by frost, or when snowbound in chimney corners and handed down to be sung in the miry street to lamplit windows at Yuletime. The voices ceased. The singers, bashful but smiling, exchanged sidelong glances, and silence succeeded, but for a moment only. Then, from up above and far away, down the tunnel they had so lately traveled was borne to their ears in a faint musical hum and the sound of distant bells ringing a joyful and clangorous peal. Villagers all, this frosty tide, let your doors swing open wide. Though wind may follow and snow beside, yet draw us by your fire to bide. Joy shall be yours in the morning. Here we stand in the cold and the sleet, blowing fingers and stamping feet. Come from far away you to greet, you the fire and we in the street, bidding you joy in the morning. For ere one half of the night was gone, sudden a star had led us on, raining bliss and benison, bliss tomorrow and more anon, joy for every morning. Goodman Joseph toiled through the snow, saw the star o'er the stable low. Mary she might not further go, welcome thatch and litter below, joy was hers in the morning. And when they heard the angels tell, who were the first to cry Noel, animals all, as it befell, in the stable where they did dwell, joy shall be theirs in the morning. Very well sung, boys, cried the rat heartily, and now come along in, all of you, and warm yourselves by the fire, and have something hot. Yes, come along, field mice, cried the mole eagerly, 
This is quite like old times. Shut the door after you. Pull up that settle to the fire. Now, you just wait a minute while we... Oh, ratty, he cried in despair, plumping down on a seat with tears impending. Whatever are we doing? We've nothing to give them. You leave all that to me, said the masterful rat. Here, he with the lantern. Come over this way. I want to talk to you. Now, tell me, are there any shops open at this hour of night? Why, certainly, sir, replied the field mouse respectfully. At this time of the year, our shops open to all sorts of hours. Then look here, said the rat. You go off at once, you and your lantern, and get me. Here much muttered conversation ensued, and the mole only heard bits of it, such as, fresh mind, no, a pound of that will do. See you get buggins, for I won't have any other. No, only the best. If you can't get it there, try somewhere else. Yes, of course, homemade, no tin stuff. Well then, do the best you can. Finally, there was a chink of coin passing from paw to paw. Fieldmounts was provided with an ample basket for his purchases, and off he hurried, he and his lantern. The rest of the field mice, perched in a row on the settle, their small legs swinging, gave themselves up to enjoyment of the fire and toasted their chilblains till they tingled, while the mole, failing to draw them into easy conversation, plunged into family history and made each of them recite the names of his numerous brothers, who were too young, it appeared, to be allowed to go out a caroling this year, but looked forward very shortly to winning the parental consent. The rat, meanwhile, was busy examining the label on one of the beer bottles. I perceive this to be old Burton, he remarked approvingly. Sensible mole, the very thing. Now I shall be able to mole some ale. Get the things ready, mole, while I draw the corks. It did not take long to prepare the brew and thrust the tin heater well into the red heart of the fire, and soon every field mouse was sipping and coughing and choking, for a little mulled ale goes a long way, and wiping his eyes and laughing and forgetting he had ever been cold in his life. They act plays too, these fellows, the mole explained to the rat, make them up all by themselves and act them afterwards, and very well they do it too. They gave us a capital one last year, about a field mouse who was captured at sea by a Barbary corsair and made to row in a galley, and when he escaped and got home again, his lady love had gone into a convent. Here, you, you were in it, I remember. Get up and recite a bit. The field mouse addressed, got up on his legs, giggled shyly, looked round the room, and remained absolutely tongue-tied. His comrades cheered him on. Mole coaxed and encouraged him, and the rat went so far as to take him by the shoulders and shake him. But nothing could overcome his stage fright. They were all busily engaged on him, like watermen applying the Royal Humane Society's regulations to a case of long submersion. When the latch clicked, the door opened, and the field mouse with the lantern reappeared, staggering under the weight of his basket. 
there was no more talk of play-acting once the very real and solid contents of the basket had been tumbled out on the table. Under the generalship of Rat, everybody was set to do something or fetch something. In a very few minutes, supper was ready, and Mole, as he took the head of the table in a sort of dream, saw a lately barren board set thick with savory comforts, saw his little friends' faces brighten and beam as they fell to without delay, and then let himself loose, for he was famished indeed, on the provender so magically provided, thinking what a happy homecoming this turned out after all. As they ate, they talked of old times, and the field mice gave him the local gossip up to date, and answered as well as they could a hundred questions he had to ask them. The rat said a little or nothing, only taking care that each guest had what he wanted, and plenty of it, and the mole had no trouble or anxiety about anything. They clattered off at last, very grateful, and showering wishes of the season, with their jacket pockets stuffed with remembrances for the small brothers and sisters at home. When the door had closed on the last of them, and the chink of the lanterns had died away, Mole and Rat kicked the fire up, drew their chairs in, brewed themselves the last nightcap of Muldale, and discussed the events of the long day. At last the Rat, with a tremendous yawn, said, Mole, old chap, I'm ready to drop. Sleepy is simply not the word. That your own bunk over on that side? Very well then, I'll take this. What a ripping little house this is. Everything's so handy. He clambered into his bunk and rolled himself well up in the blankets, and slumber gathered him forthwith, as a swash of barley is folded into the arms of the reaping machine. The weary mole also was glad to turn in without delay, and soon had his head on his pillow, in great joy and contentment, but ere he had closed his eyes, and he let them wander around his old room, mellow in the glow of the firelight, that played or rested on familiar and friendly things, which had long been unconsciously a part of him, and now smilingly received him back without rancor. He was now in just the frame of mind that the tactful rat had quietly worked to bring about in him, he saw clearly how plain and simple, how narrow even it all was, but clearly, too, how much it all meant to him, and the special value of some such anchorage in one's existence. He did not want it all to abandon the new life in its splendid spaces, to turn his back on sun and air and all they offered him, and creep home and stay there. The upper world was all too strong. It called to him still, even down there, and he knew he must return to the larger stage. But it was good to think he had this to come back to, this place which was all his own, these things which were so glad to see him again and could always be counted upon for the same simple welcome. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.